Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, and today we welcome Mark Carmen, video host for Fansided and WGM radio host. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Liam, I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Looking forward to having a conversation. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. And uh, likewise, looking forward to it. Should be fun. Now, to start, as always, uh, Mark, how about you just kind of take us through your own uh, sports media journey here from when you first realized that being in this industry was something you wanted to do, and then how you ended up uh, doing radio and working for Fansa? So, my career is one that I strongly do not recommend, um, <laughs> go, at least going about it the way that I did, which was kind of getting out of college at the University of Iowa in 1996 when I graduated and figuring out that that I really had no plan and I loved Michael Jordan and I really just wanted to somehow some way get in the locker room and be able to talk to him mm-hmm. so uh and I had those thoughts well it'd be sweet if I could make a lot of money and get a cool job like that but I figured that I had to, if I wanted to do radio, I was, you know, that, that was the time to do it when I was young. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I started interning, um, at, uh, at W at the score at the time, which was, was the store. I think the score started, I want to say in 1992, it was the first sports talker in Chicago. And, uh, that led me to, uh, producing a brokered sports show where, these guys were buying the time on a on a music station, ninety two point seven The Bear, mm-hmm. and I became the executive producer of the Naked Truth About Sports, where uh, my name was affectionately dubbed Spanky because <laughs> I was li- living at home with my parents and had no social life. So uh, that that was uh, that was an interesting start, and. Um, you know, I I didn't realize, even though I should have, I, I think at least I somewhat realized, Liam, that, wow, there are a lot of people in this industry that knew that they wanted to do it since they were eight years old and were on their high school radio station and were on their college radio station and they went to Syracuse and they got a lot of contact. And here I was kind of just starting out um, and didn't really know a whole lot other than just trying to get my foot in the door. Um, so I, I, I didn't really realize how far behind I was, but, um, you know, I ended up from there, I ended up at, in small market radio in, in, uh, in DeKalb, Illinois, which is about 70 miles west of Chicago at WLBK, uh, doing, uh, as their sports director. So I was doing sports on the morning show and high school football and basketball play-by-play and junior college uh, play-by-play and um, and also I had to cover you know city council events too I had to help out the news department of uh, I think there's maybe one person well there's definitely one maybe two people in there uh, with mm-hmm. me and him so it was uh, you know that was that was basically the start um, I don't know if you want me to keep going through the whole progression here uh, which I certainly I, can but um, keep rolling baby keep rolling yeah so so anyway I, I was do I did that um, at, at uh, WLVK until about 2001. I jumped over, you know, it was a huge thing with, with the Naked Truth that, you know, my it was 1998, so here I am and, you know, we're this brand new show on this brokered station, but I'm covering 
the, at least on the home side, the 1998 Chicago Bulls last season of Michael Jordan. And I'm in the locker room and asking Michael questions and my heart's, and I, I spent a ton of time in the visitors locker room during that period because, you know, the media would line up at halftime to get a spot next to Michael's locker. Yeah. And I knew that I wasn't as important in, you know, as CBS and ABC and NBC and, you know, TV news was still a big thing back then. And I, I didn't, you know, the, the audio that I was getting, I didn't need Michael Jordan's audio as much as getting something more unique or just for my own enjoyment. So I would, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be sitting there doing one-on-ones with Allen Iverson back in the day and uh, Tracy McGrady. I remember him being really, really frustrated as a rookie coming into the league. So it was a lot of fun just being in the visitor's locker room at that time. You know, the, the Charlotte Hornets were terrifying. They had Alonzo Mourning and Anthony Mason. And, you know, they, of course, these teams would be coming in. They'd be losing to the Bulls, and they'd be, you know, irate afterwards. So it was it was kind of an interesting interesting start into the business. Um, uh, so, anyway, that was, that was a, a fun way to sort of kick off. And then I'm like, okay, well, I probably need to – try to get myself on the air here. So let's go out to DeKalb. Uh, and also the show after it lasted one year and then the station was being sold. So I was out looking for work. Mm-hmm. But um, from there in my mid-20s, I, uh, you know, I'm out in DeKalb and it's in the small market radio and I'm not moving forward. And so I'm getting frustrated. You know, where I don't want to be living in DeKalb. My friends are making all this dough. Maybe I should get a real job and get married so I, you know, I, I'm 20, let's call it 28. I, I leave the Cal, I come back, I get a, I end up uh, getting a sales job in a transportation logistics company. Um, and that's what I did uh, till about say 30 years old. So I'm in this relationship, I'm working in transportation logistics and I'm like, and I'm doing okay, but I'm not getting rich. And I basically had my first midlife crisis at 30 where I, you know, broke up with my girlfriend at the time, quit the job, traveled overseas for two months and then came back to Chicago in the dead of winter. And now I'm in my thirties and well, what am I going to do? And so, you know, my brothers who are, I have two older brothers plus 15 and plus 20 years older than me. And so I, and they were always traders. They would work at the board of trader at CBOE and, you know, stock market guys like trading places Eddie Murphy, if uh, I'm sure people, most, I think some people might get that reference. So that's what I was, you know, that's what I was going to do. And so I started trading off the floor um, and I had no idea what the hell I was looking at. And I was, and I found out quickly that I was bad at it. Um, (laughs) And my, my buddy, Ryan Marks calls me up and he was the head coach of a division two, uh, college basketball team in Austin, Texas, the St. Edwards University Hilltoppers. And he says, you know, Carm, do you want to come down here and do the play-by-play for us? And I'm like, well, what's it pay? He says, well, it pays $3,000 for the season. And I said, hell, yes, I'm in. I'm not making any money doing this. Let's let's go down to Austin, Texas and, and live with my buddy and call his games for five months, and then we'll figure it out from there. So – you know, also during this time, Liam, I was I was always uh, vending uh, at the ballpark. So I, you know, I started out selling cotton candy at mm-hmm. uh, what was then Comiskey Park, now Guaranteed Race Field, 
and then my and then I was also working at Wrigley Field. So as as you and that's a seniority business. So as I worked my way up from cotton candy to peanuts to hot dogs to finally getting the coveted beer tub, you know, you could actually make a living doing that. You you do okay. So it's kind of supported my radio habit where I could go down and, you know, make three grand and then come back in the summer um, and sell beer and, and, you know, survive, and, you know, not live uh, in, in, at, in uh, Trump's hotel, but you know, you, you could, you were doing, I was doing okay. Um, and so from there, I, I did that for a couple of years uh, down in St. Edwards. I think I did two, I did at least two seasons. Maybe I was getting ready for my third and I ended up getting hired at that point at WGN Radio in Chicago, uh, where I'm working part, you know, where I work part time now, um, to produce their nightly sports show with uh, David Kaplan as the host, and mm-hmm. Caps on uh, NBC Sports Chicago now and ESPN 1000. So now I'm producing his show um, and getting some up on air opportunities, but you know, uh, and doing some stuff with Northwestern and whatever else. And here I'm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm producing the show. I'm still vending at the ballparks. I'm doing this now incognito because mm-hmm. I'm in, you know, I would, I would uh, be on the field for pregame sound. Then I would go and vend the game. Then I would go change and do the, uh, do the on the fly shower, go back in the clubhouse, get the sound. And I was doing an 11 o'clock sports report at night. So I would wear like my, my vending outfit with my, with my sunglasses on and just try not to be recognized by, you know, whoever it was just a, it was a bizarre existence, Liam, but that's what I was doing because, you know, I was, I was making radio pay um, and I wanted to make the, the extra bill vending. So eventually from there, I, I get a job in Kansas City um, to, I'm trying to get myself on the air full time. And the job was you got to do updates on the afternoon show. You also had to produce the afternoon show and there would be some hosting available to me. So I take this job in Kansas City at 610 Sports Radio, and I get down there, and, you know, I, I know the name of the guy I'm working with, but, you know, I really don't know anything of him other than some people at Syracuse who knew him and said he was a good guy. And I walk in to, you know, my first day on the job. They told me to get there at 9 o'clock, and he was still doing the midday show that week before moving to afternoons. And I see this guy, and he's standing up and then he's getting in his chair and then he's sitting in the chair in a catcher's stance and then he's standing back up and he's fidgeting. He's got a huge freaking nose. And I'm like, who the hell is this dude? Um, and, and how, why am I producing a kid that's, you know, 10 years younger than me? Um, and his name was Nick Wright, who I think most people have heard of at this point, uh, you know, at, at Fox sports. And it, it took me all of about two weeks, William, to realize, this guy is more talented and with all due respect than really anybody that I was working with in Chicago. It was just obvious that um, he was really, really good at his job. And so they, the afternoon show on 610 had never been the heritage sports talker and Kevin Keatsman on 810. And Nick, of course, went on to do that. And uh, the show was just a lot of fun. You know, we, uh, I became a, you know, I got a lot of airtime, and I was a good foil for Nick. And it was, uh, and Carrington Harrison was on the show too, who's hosting afternoons now in Kansas City. Um, so it was, it was uh, kind of a lucky thing to to just walk into some people with some big time talent. Um, but Nick ended up, uh, you know, leaving and going to Houston, and they ended up blowing out the whole show. 
So now here I'm, you know, in my 40s and out of work and my dream of getting, you know, a full-time show of my own in Kansas City is gone. But um, I end up getting an afternoon show on Yahoo Sports Radio, which is based out of Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I did that for nine months before my partner left and I could just tell the writing was going to be on the wall back there. So I moved back to Chicago. I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting my years a little bit messed up. I moved back to Chicago, I think, when, actually when I was about turning, around turning 40. Yeah. And I'm going to, at this point, I've, I've kind of played with real estate on the side. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a hostile hotel worker slash owner. That was the plan, and get out of the business at 40. Uh, but David Kaplan calls me back up, who I produced at WGN, and uh, he asked me if I would be willing to be the sidekick on his new sports show that they were starting up on on, on WGN at night. Mm. So here I think I'm out, and now I'm back in, and I'm hosting nights uh, on WGN in Chicago. It's a, really a dream come true at that point. Um, WGN then starts a sports show a year later called The Game, 87.7 All Sports. That station lasted nine months. They gave me my own uh, night show along with Connor McKnight. And, uh, of course, it lasted nine months. Mm-hmm. That ends. It's the, it's the end of 2014. And I'm out of the business again. But <laughs> yeah. I, I'm playing tennis with the guy. I, I hope everybody is still with me here. I'm playing tennis with the guys. Like, have you ever heard of fan sided? No, I haven't. Mm-hmm. Well, they're doing writing tests. Um, I'm like, really? Where'd you find that out? Craigslist. Oh, okay. Well, I'll check it out. So I look on Craigslist. Here's this ad, and this writing test was literally four blocks from my house. So I walk in, and Patrick Allen, who uh, used to run the Chiefs blog there and now runs the office of Fansided, he starts looking at me all funny, and I could just tell that he knew me. And he's like, he's like, Carm, I, I, I didn't think you'd be interested in something like this. And I said, well, dude, I don't have a job. I'm trying to, you know, keep my name out there. And by the way, how do you know me? He said, well, I used to listen to you in Kansas City because I had this Chiefs blog and we would, you know, we'd listen to 610. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, uh, Patrick has me start doing some writing for him. And then about eight months later, he's like, I'd like to make you our video guy. And I said, well, wh- what does that mean? He's like, I want you to take that camera right there, stand in front of it, say something, and put it onto the Internet by using iMovie. Do you know how to use iMovie? No, I do not, but I will learn. So, uh, you know, so we, so we started doing videos. And then uh, along that time, I, I was able to get back in at WGN part-time uh, doing what started with doing their Bears uh, post-game show uh, with the Hall of Famer Dan Hampton and old school Ed O'Bradovich. So I was just hanging around in radio and getting going to fan-sided. And from there, that's uh, – you know, we just continue to grow it. So that's what I am doing today. Very long-winded, Liam, but that is the, that is the calm career journey of which I started at the start saying, I do not recommend this path. And I think perhaps people, people see why. It's been a winding road. Yeah, Mark, I think winding road probably understates the, uh, the matter there a little bit. That's a pretty, uh, that's, yeah, that's a remarkable journey. Lots of, I mean, damn, that's a Hollywood script right there. You got your pitfalls. You got the, you even had the whole Europe thing. Like you really hit every single base mark of the career journey there. It was quite remarkable, honestly. Do have a couple questions for you though to follow up there. Um, 
So obviously there were a couple times in the, over the course of your career here where you were pretty much just SOL. You know, you didn't really have any opportunities in front of you. You ended up going to do other stuff. You worked in the trading floor. You did all this, all this, all this, all this crazy stuff outside the industry. Were there times where you just kind of felt like you were never going to get back into the industry again, or did you always kind of have that kernel of hope? Oh, for sure. I I thought that. Uh, well, I didn't know how I was going to get back in, or if I was going to get back in, or if I even at times like you know even if I wanted to get back in. Mm. But actually, that's probably a lie. I'll, I'll, uh, I think every time I turned on the radio and would hear people that I judged that I was better than, it would just drive me nuts. And um, you know, I'd be I'd be extremely jealous. So mm. I, I remember going into like the sales office at WGN at one point. Like, you know, I'm like, uh, "Hey, uh, Jeff Hill, will you? You know, I'm thinking about doing sales." And he just looks at me. He's like, "Dude." The second an on-air opportunity comes, you will bolt out the door. I'm not hiring you. And he was right. Like there's, <laughs> it's like it's it's like a disease. You know, you can't that microphone uh, or the video camera or sports or whatever. You just can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I've just been fortunate enough that you know doors that have um, continued to open for me after they've shut and. I mean, most people in the industry they get fired a ton, and that and I've been let go or whatever you uh, you know it's happened to me twice. Um, so I'm I'm sure it'll happen again. And you know, as as you get older and older, it gets harder and harder to get back in. But you know, hopefully you've built up good relationships, and and hopefully people appreciate your work, and and you'll get another opportunity. So, but but the long-winded answer, yes, I I definitely thought it's been over for me multiple times. Yeah, that was the what struck me really about your uh, your story is that it's almost the perfect encapsulation of sort of what you need to succeed in sports media. It's you need talent, but you also need a lot of luck and you need a lot of connections. And so you had a, your fair share of bad luck, but you also had you know some good luck come your way. And you know you kept a lot of those connections open, especially at WGN and all that. And that's really what that's what it comes down to. It's just a matter of time and opportunity as much as it is your actual talent level. So anybody listening to this who uh, you know, wants to know how hard it is to make it in this industry can definitely take some notes there. But uh, going on to um, your uh, your initial relationship with Nick Wright, that's pretty cool. You know, like you said, lucky for you kind of running into a guy with a lot of talent like that. What exactly about Wright made you realize that he was going to be big time? He had a, or he has, I should say. I mean, he's still doing it, I believe. Um, he's got a, it was very clear early that, this guy, not only is he funny, it, it, and it comes out much more on a four-hour radio show than it can on him doing clips, you know, doing first things first, but he, it's them, which it still comes out there, too. But, like, okay, this guy is funny. He's edgy. He's incredibly well-prepared that he can talk about anything. And he had, like, this savant way of doing the show and following Twitter and knowing exactly where to take things while also seeing exactly what was happening in the world. So, you know, he would, if he was behind, it was literally 10 seconds behind that the chiefs just picked up this person or the Royals released that or whatever, something, something within the realm of the division that was interesting to his listeners. He was on top of. So I, it was, 
there was a certain level of depth in the conversation that he was having that I wasn't necessarily used to. And, and also just, um, he would be able to just seize opportunities for humor that, uh, that were unique. So it was just, it was a very wide range of what he was bringing to the table. And how was it being his producer? Mm, how was it? It's <laughs> a great it? question. It it was. I mean, I'll give one story. Like I, um, I'm at. I was doing Royals. Uh, I would fill in doing the Royals pre and post for Robert Ford, who's now the Astros play by play guy. And when I wasn't doing it, I would be assigned to go cover the Royals that night, be in the locker room, mm-hmm. get an interview, and then come up and play it on the post game show. So this is after doing the afternoon show. I'd, I'd go to I'd go to Coffin Stadium. You'd have to wait through a you know the Royals were terrible at that point. So I, I'm in like our studio watching the game at at the at Coffin Stadium, and the radio board that was in there was up unbeknownst to me. And I'm on the I'm on the phone with uh, a, a a girl, a woman who's kind of trying to date me who I don't want to date and she's flirting with me and I'm just being I don't know if surly is the word but it, it wasn't anything that I would certainly ever want on the radio yeah but so the board op called Nick it says dude I can hear Carm out at the K and Nick immediately says tape it tape it tape it tape it <laughs> and I so I don't know what's going on and then the next day on the show he's like you know um we're about to do a segment Karim doesn't know what it is. I'm not sure if he's going to quit after the show, but we're going to do it anyway. So this was Karm last night at the K. And he just picked out these, just like I was making groaning sounds or whatever the hell I was doing. Like, and, and just, it, tur- it was unbelievable how exposed I was and how like brilliantly hysterical it was at the same time. So you had to working with Nick, you had to appreciate the fact that he was going to try to expose you and your, and your takes that didn't, you know, make sense to him. So you had to have like a pretty strong backbone to handle it. And then just sort of appreciate that it was in the best interest of the show. And also it, it, it made me popular. You know, it gave me, people got to know me in a way they wouldn't have because he would be poking at me. And so I would, I guess I built some, like, you know, a, a sympathy-o-meter that people just really enjoyed, you know, I guess hopefully some of my work and also just the, the character that I was on in the show. So it, it was great working with Nick, um, but not always always comfortable. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, definitely makes sense. It kind of sounds like what Jim Rome has going on with everybody behind the camera over there. All the Colin guys kind of poke fun at the dudes running the show in the background, and it's all just kind of a part of the big game so it is good you know obviously like you said give you a little bit of recognition as far as just being pulled in there but that's uh no mercy huh no mercy at all no mercy no no mercy and i you know one of my jobs was doing the sports updates which i wasn't great at mm. and so he would just pick apart my sports updates to the point that uh <laughs> it was I, I didn't exactly look forward to doing them uh, which I did create the character, not Stephen A. Smith, which uh, somehow I was better at doing the update as not Stephen A. than as myself, which, which uh, <laughs> was, was a fun thing back in the day. That's yeah. strange how the mind works. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, sounds like you did him a big favor by giving him a lot of content to riff off of on the afternoons. <laughs> 
I deserve to raise, Liam. Damn it, that's I, I will agree with that take. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and then the other interesting thing that I was thinking about uh, about your journey here is that you've done probably more behind the scenes work than you have actually been kind of on air. What, if anything, about being behind the scenes does it? What about doing that kind of thing, producing and that sort of thing? Does that help you make make you a better radio host uh, over the course of your career there? I, I would say that that you know being around it and seeing how talented people in the business do it. I mean, I worked with David Kaplan in Chicago. He's had an absolutely you know, phenomenal career. So you can learn stuff from Cap or, or, or Nick or whoever. Um, but ultimately, the only way you're going to really get good at it is doing it. So whenever I talk to anybody who's young in the business now, and there's so many different ways you can get yourself started now that wasn't available back in you know mid to late 90s, I just think you need to be doing podcasts, doing radio shows if you're so fortunate to get hired at a station, um, doing play-by-play if that's what you want to do. Uh, if you want to have a career behind the scenes, then, then by all means, start out producing. And if you want to be a program director, it's the path to doing it. Um, but I don't think you – it's diminishing returns the longer you stay in the producing role. I think, if, you know, to get in the business and see what's up, okay, great. But you don't want to spend too much time doing that because it's it's just you're not going to learn a whole lot until you actually like it, it, to me it's like you're just watching the game you know are you going to get good at basketball playing it or are you going to get good sitting there on the bench watching you know what's happening it's, to me it's kind of the same thing if you want to be an on air host mm, definitely that makes a lot of sense now for my final question about your media career here I just have to ask since from the outset it sounded like your main inspiration to do all this was to uh, get to talk to Michael Jordan. Did you ever get to talk to Michael Jordan, and what was it like when you first did? So my first experience with Michael was mortifying, Liam. Um, he, you know, the Bulls, well, the Bulls used to practice at a place called the Multiplex, which mm-hmm. was just your standard health club in the suburbs. So, you know, as a kid, I would be, you know, my, you know, I came from a little bit of privilege, at least to the point that I could afford to go to a health club growing up, right? And so... Um, you know, I would see Michael on the court and I would follow him around uh, and follow the other Bulls around. So, and then, you know, I, I grew up a huge fan where, you know, where I go to picture days and all that type of stuff. So, and my, my goal in, in, in getting a locker room to ask the question and all that, it happens. Uh, I, I took a class right after Iowa at Columbia college, Chicago, which is a radio and kind of an artsy school. And they had a, play-by-play class that was taught by Red Botmo, who's passed away. But you got to go to the game, do play-by-play, and then you'd be in the locker room. Um, And so they were playing the Vancouver Grizzlies. It's the third game of the 1997 season. And he had, Jordan had been on Oprah that day. Space Jam was just coming out and he was, he wanted to promote it. So he's on Oprah. And Oprah found this old video of Jordan and Pippen and Elston Turner, who was a uh, guard on the Bulls, and I think Horace Grant and Charles Oakley were in there too. And they were all wearing sunglasses and tank tops, and I think it was in a mall in Houston, and they're doing this, they're dancing to the How You Like Me Now song, and they all look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so Jordan is, you know, laughing hysterically at this on Oprah. So I get in there, you know, they beat, they beat the Grizzlies by 30. 
Um, first wave of reporters go in, they talk to Michael, second wave, third wave. And so we're standing there with Jordan, and everyone's left, but Michael's in you know, great mood. The Bulls are 3-0, and and his movie's coming out, and he's back playing basketball, and he's loving everything. So he's just sitting there talking to the reporters forever. So it's mm-hmm. me and, like, ten other people. This, happened, this is the one time this ever happened like this. And so I'm like, i got to ask a question. i got to ask a question. So what am I, I going to say? And I, it just dawns on me, go with the dancing thing. So I say, hey, Michael, how about a little How You Like Me Now dance a la Oprah? And he <laughs> looks at me like well, I'm a complete idiot, man. So he, he, look, he looks at me, shoots me this look, starts shaking his head, and just says, don't jump in. As in, <laughs> don't jump into the conversation. Everyone laughs at my question. Jordan leaves. You know, that was the end. Like, it was like, you know, the, the last, you know, the, 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 the punchline, and he's gone. And so I've just been shamed by my hero. I've ended the talk, which we could, who knows, we would have had like another couple of minutes there, you know, it was, and, and, and now I've got to sit with the fact that I got torched by him. So that was my first question to Michael Jordan. Um, and then the next year I would just throw different things at him, but it was, it, you know, nothing ever happened like that. And he would, you know, he, he was always very, um, you know, if you, hey, Michael, was it was it good that, you know, like they had a 30-point ball. Mike, was it was it good that you got a little rest back? Nope, nope, didn't need it. Like, you know, he was just competitive with every single question. Yeah. But that, but that first one, I'll always remember it. Yeah, that's, that is pretty brutal, as you said. <laughs> but I think also, you know, it's a mark of honor to be eviscerated by Michael Jordan. I mean, at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it, it didn't make the last dance, but it was, you know, it's certainly <laughs> in the spirit of the last dance. <laughs> oh man imagine if it wasn't the last dance if they <laughs> watching espn and you saw yourself just owned by michael jordan in front of the camera that would have been that would have been tough but again another mark of honor there yeah for sure for sure <laughs> oh that's great well yeah mark that's a wild journey but you know now you're here you got a lot of a lot of fun stuff going on in chicago sports right now so we'll talk a little bit about that first we'll start with the white Sox. uh Obviously, with the backdrop that the MLB season is constantly in peril here, uh, what did you like what you saw from the first couple of games from uh, this young White Sox squad? Um, well, actually, you know, I guess what I liked the most uh, was the fact they're scoring runs. Mm-hmm. I mean, 15 of them in the first two games was sweet to see. But, you know, I, I had the White Sox in the playoffs, Liam, and, you know, they – they dropped two or three to the Twins, which, you know, in a 60-game season feels like a bigger deal than it probably is, but it just felt big to get, to get walloped. And you had Lucas Giolito not pitch well in game one, who was an all-star last year, and uh, now Dylan Cease is getting rocked as we're speaking today. So that's not good. But they have so much talent, it's, it's, uh, I think it's only a matter of time. I mean, Luis Robert in center field is going to be dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Eloy is going to hit a ton of home runs in left. I do worry that he's never going to figure out left field as he went cracking into the wall on Sunday here. So that's that's not great. But uh, you know, Yohan Moncada is an MVP candidate. I think down the line at third base. And, mm-hmm. uh, Tim Anderson won the batting title last year at short. So there's a and, you know Jose Abreu is a solid veteran. First, you know, all over the place. There's talent here and more coming with Nick Madrigal. So I, I'm very optimistic on the White Sox, uh, but they do have to get their pitching in order. Certainly. And, Tim, well, you, you just rattled off a bunch of names there that are, you know, worth getting excited about. Tim Anderson, Moncada over there. 
But if you had to uh, pick one player on the White Sox this year who might surprise people, what name comes to mind? So I was betting on Dylan Cease to have a breakout year because uh, the, ta- the, the stuff is so nasty. But, um, I, you know, he's, that, that seems like I, I might be uh, – that might be a little more wishful thinking. So if we're talking breakout year, I mean, maybe I just go with the obvious answer here and, and – I mean, Luis Robert should be, has a great chance of being the rookie of the year this year and, and making a name for himself all across baseball. I mean, here's a guy that's not only playing center field, but he's almost playing all three outfield positions, uh, runs like a deer and has power, uh, and just seems incredibly confident in his abilities that already is hitting fastballs and off-speed stuff, although you know, I, I think he is probably going to pile up some strikeouts early in the season. But uh, this is going to be a household name in baseball here very very quickly in Luis Robert yeah he's a very exciting young player like you said real strong rookie of the year candidate and overall the White Sox just have a lot of young foundational pieces which is awesome but that also kind of comes back to the fact that you've had them in the playoffs this year but they are a super young team do you feel like it'd be a disappointment if they didn't make the playoffs this year or is it just sort of would it be like a you know give them a pass just because it's a weird year and they have so much youth kind of they're leaning on I, I look at it like it's a no-lose. If you're in the playoffs, great. You're ahead of schedule. If you're not, well, that's okay. Exactly what you just said, weird year. However, if they finish 20 and 40, assuming we have a baseball season, then that would be disappointing. They should be at least around 500, even in the circumstances and everything that's going on. I, I, I think if you're I – mean, this is a 72-win team last year, so it would be a big – it's a somewhat of a leap to get to 500, but – and I'm expecting that they'll do that. They spent a ton of money in the offseason. Uh, you know, Dallas Keuchel and Yasmani Grandel and Edwin Encarnacion. They, they should at least be playing 500 baseball. Yeah, definitely. And out of those, like you said, a lot of money was spent. And out of those free, like kind of key free agent acquisitions here, which one needs to step up the most for the White Sox to do what we're just talking about and make a run at the playoffs here? Uh, it's got to be Keuchel. They need, I think that that's where they need help the most. I mean, if, if Grandal's great, that's sweet, but it's not. James McCann is, you know, he was an all-star last year, and they're splitting time with Grandal. Uh, if if Edwin doesn't work out, the Sox have DH options other than him. So uh, you, I, I think that they, they need starting pitching. Plus, they've, Ronaldo Lopez is going to be lost for a period of time here with the shoulder injury. So, And there's some depth, or there is actually depth of, of young arms, but I, I think it really comes down to Keiko as far as the biggest key offseason acquisition. Mm-hmm. And how optimistic are you that he's going to be able to do that? He hasn't really looked like himself for a couple of years. Well, I mean, kind of depends on what you view as himself, but he's certainly gone downhill since the Cy Young year a little bit. You know, are you feeling, you feeling good about that? I, I Well, he was great in his first start. He had a decent season last year, kind of got roughed up a little bit in the playoffs, but... Uh, you know, I think last year coming in midway through was probably challenging, although this is not your normal ramp-up either. But I, I do feel kind of, he looks phenomenal in, in one start now again, one start. But I, I think that uh, he can be certainly a guy that's going to give you five, six quality innings every time he goes out there. And I, I don't think the White Sox are expecting much more than that. I don't know if you can hear that motorcycle in the background. Liam, I apologize if you can. All good. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, Keuchel's, he's, he's got the stuff. We know he's got the stuff. It's just about putting it together on a consistent basis. So it'll be 
it'll be fun to watch. They're a really fun team to watch, at the very least. I had them on the other day, and I haven't watched the White Sox game since probably, like, 2005 when they went to the World Series. So, I'm a fan, so it's like the Sox thing, you know. I feel like a little bit of a connection. And, you know, we had Moncada before we uh, got, got, got sale from you guys, so I like uh, keeping an eye on him. But, yeah, no, it's going to be a fun season. Should be, you know, assuming it finishes and everything goes well, you know, extenuating circumstances aside. But uh, are, are you happy? Are you happy with that trade? And, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think sale, we paid sale all that money. We made that trade to win a World Series and we won the World Series. You know, I think I would it would be stupid to be upset about that because it's a World Series. You know, Red Sox fans have been yep. super over the last 20 years as far as in that particular regard. We won like five championships, but that doesn't change, you know everything has to go right for a team to win a championship most of the time. And, you know, it did go right for that one season. And then the pendulum luck just sort of swung the other way. And that's sort of how it is. I might have a different answer for you in five years if Moncada ends up being a perennial MVP candidate, but we probably would have traded away him just like we did Mookie Betts. So, it's, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That that one, I, I still don't get, but okay. Yeah, I don't get it either. I spent, I was actually very glad that was like the first big Boston sports event where I like had a writing job that I could express my displeasure about. So I was at least gracious for the platform that I had to uh, do my best to verbally undress John Henry and the ownership group. I don't think they read it, but it's fine. I, I feel a little bit better about it. Anyway. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think, look, you got, uh, the White Sox would kill to get one World Series if you're on Moncada. So you're, at, at this point, you're ahead bottom line exactly if i'm complaining about the fact that sales out for the year and just getting paid a lot of money but we had a world series and i just found let sound like your average spoiled boston fan and i do my best not to sound like that i'm sure i'm not always successful as my co-workers will attest to but i definitely do my best <laughs> anyway to switch gears a little bit um there's another team in chicago with a lot of you know exciting young talent but i would define them as perhaps probably much different expectations a little bit of a curveball i didn't tell you we we're going to talk about them but the bulls uh i love kobe white i love Lori markanen i love uh wendell carter i don't love jim boylan what are your thoughts on the uh new GM that got brought in and what he should do with Boylan and then kind of overall, just how do you feel about this young core? So I thought you were going to say the Cubs and you were going to talk about Javi Baez and Chris Bryant. I did not, my bull's antenna was not up here, Liam. So <laughs> this is a straight curveball. Uh, I think that it's great that the bulls have finally moved on and that our tourists going to get a shot here to be the GM or the whatever his uh, now title is bumped up to food Jane and, and Mark Eversley will be the general manager. And the Jim Boylan thing is just straight weird. I get that John Paxson, Jerry Reinsdorf, Bulls management likes Jim Boylan. Jim Boylan's a nice guy. He lives in my neighborhood. I see him getting coffee. He's very friendly he's not a head coach in the NBA. He just isn't. And this is not something that I don't think anyone is lacking in understanding with maybe the exception of a couple people in the Bulls front office. So it's bizarre. I, I guess in the middle of a pandemic, do they not want to take on paying another coach? I wonder about that. Jerry Reinsdorf has a lot of money and he's been a very generous person 
throughout his life and it does a ton of great stuff um, for the community in Chicago. So I'm, so I'm not trying to paint him in the, the cheap zone here, but it is just, I'm just trying to figure out reasons of why they wouldn't do it. Cause Jim Boylan is definitely not the answer moving forward here. It just, it just isn't. So, and I'm very curious as to, you know, who's staying and who's going. I mean, Markkinen has talent, but you really need a creative coach to figure out how to use him because he's not, you know, a great standstill shooter. He's not going to overpower you in the post. He's not going to beat you off the bounce to get to the bucket. So how do you use him? You know, and like people would compare him say to Dirk. Well, okay. Dirk Nowitzki is a preposterous basketball player with an, you know, one of the greatest shots, from a you know a guy standing six ten in the history of the game, Markin is just you know he's not that. So, and you know Dirk could score in a zillion different ways. Lowry doesn't really have that. Now he's gonna, I think he can get points, but I don't know. There's not really one specific way that you can script it up for him. So I, I, I wonder how they look at him. And you know Zach is talented as hell and works his his, his butt off, uh, but. Until he's on a winning team, and this feels completely unfair, you you wonder if he's a winning player, uh, or wonder maybe more importantly if the Bulls think he's a winning player. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know how they're viewing Zach Levine. Um, you know, maybe they, they view him as a gunner at the two guard spot who's never going to really play within a system and be successful. I don't think that's true. I like Zach Levine. He's the best player on the team. Incredibly talented. I would bet on him. And the Bulls did, you know, with a four year contract, but. Very affordable money. He could be moved. Uh, Kobe White, I like him too, but is he really a you know a starting premier point guard in the league at a premier position, or is he more of a six man type off the bench? We definitely do not know the answer to that after three quarters of one season. So there's some talent there, but I don't know if you can point to any you know they they certainly don't have their their one who's going to lead them there. They still, they, they need to luck out in the lottery and it would look so much different by the way, if they had gotten Zion or gotten John Moran uh, or, you know, gone back any different, any other year where they picked seventh and have ended up with Wendell Carters and whatnot. So they, they just, they don't have the prime time guy who's going to carry him. So at best they're trying to be a middling 500 team at this point. Yeah. The interesting thing about Lori, everything you said was right. And there was some inklings uh, that I remember hearing, you know, gotten a couple months ago now that he may or may not want out of Chicago. So if they did explore trade options for him, it would be certainly at least a very interesting uh, statement on how the rest of the league views him. Because as you said, he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't fit that sort of persona that everybody's putting on him of like a Dirk or Kristaps Porzingis, where he's this sweet shooting European big man who can kind of just, as long as you get the ball in his hands, he can shoot the shot and hit it. It's not quite that. So that'll be interesting. But yeah, overall, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that because I think, like you said, they don't have their number one, but they have these intriguing pieces, but you like don't really know what they're about. And as you say, they are cursed to forever pick seventh in the NBA draft. So they're going to have to figure it out one way or the other. Although this year, picking seventh is no that, that much bigger of a detriment than picking in third or second because nobody knows what the prospects are like this year. So who knows? It might work out in their favor there. Yeah, and you got me thinking as far as the coach that can put this whole thing together. Uh, I believe he just signed with the New York Knicks. Uh, I I really think that Tibbs 
would be creative with these guys and figure it out. I mean, look what he did with Joe when he was here. He basically made him a point power forward, and the guy finished number four overall in the MVP voting. A lot of people like to dog Tom Thibodeau, but that never would have happened. Uh, Noah being that level of performer without Tibbs having a vision for him. They really need somebody that can come up with a vision for what Lowry is and how to use him. Yeah, and that uh, the Joakim thing was like before being a point forward was cool. Like he was way ahead of the curve on that, and he helped develop. I mean, he was already a really excellent defensive player when he came into the league, but he elevated him to defensive player of the year level. So that would have been fun, and it would have been a cool little hometown reunion there. But given the Knicks track record, you'll have another shot at them in probably two years. So. <laughs> that's probably true i don't think he's ever coming back here but uh tom probably will end up in that new york graveyard of coaching with mike d'antoni and Derek fisher and isaiah thomas and whoever else you want to name exactly exactly all right now real quick before we launch into our last section here northwestern football how excited are you for this season that could happen or could not happen let's operate under the assumption that it is and kind of what should uh what do you think fans expectations should be for northwestern this year look at my guy liam bringing up the northwestern wildcats this you- is a true treat um i well first of all i don't think we're gonna have college football uh, do you by the way, what do you I, think? I, th- I do not think we'll have college football, and I think that if they decided to do that, then it would be a massive, massive, massive mistake. But just for the sake of talking about theoretical stuff, <laughs> because it's a little bit fun that way, uh, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, well, they, what's interesting about Northwestern this year is that they have a graduate transfer quarterback in Peyton Ramsey from Indiana who is super excited to be here for one year. And and last year, I mean, Northwestern's quarterback play was just so unbelievably atrocious. Hunter Johnson was a five-star recruit coming over from Clemson. This was supposed to be the guy, the greatest quarterback in Wildcat history. And for the record, they've had some good ones. I mean, you know, Trevor Simeon's had a halfway decent career in the NFL. And uh, there's a bunch, you know, Zach Kustak. They've had a lot of good quarterbacks in in, – in Northwestern history, which is so, uh, and Hunter was supposed to be at the top of that list. And he was just, he just was terrible. And there was a lot of stuff going on off the field. So, uh, but Peyton Ramsey is definitely a credible guy. Uh, and that defense is, should be significant. Cats had a really tough year last year uh, after going to a bowl game for four straight years and, and, and winning bowl games, which, you know, had not happened at Northwestern since 2014. And then they've gone on a run where Fitz is, he hasn't brought him back to the Rose Bowl. Like, uh, you know, Gary Barnett took him there in 95 and the incredible run. And then, you know, lost to Keyshawn Johnson and USC. But there's, you know, North, Northwestern is, is, they've invested a ton in athletics. So the football facility, not the stadium itself, but the practice facility is, as nice as any in college football, uh, they the Northwestern should be very competitive for many, many years to come. I, I, it's hard to say this year, you know, with a grad quarterback, can he step in and have an immediate impact? But I'd like to think it's the low end this year that at least Northwestern's a bold team again. All right, well, that's all seems about right. Uh, a lot like. <laughs> Couldn't believe you brought up Trevor Simeon, man. I haven't thought about Trevor Simeon in so long. 
yeah, no, it should be a fun season, a good bounce back season. Hopefully, you know, if it all happens, I think it would be for the best if it didn't. But if it's all if it's full steam ahead, regardless of what this sports writer thinks, then uh, that that seems about right for Northwestern as far as what fans look forward to in 2020. Now we're going to move well, on. To you, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, who do you who do you root for in college football? Where'd you go to school, Ian? I went to Fordham University, so I, uh, you know, don't have a lot of college football ties there because we suck. We do have a Chase Edmonds on Arizona right now. Nice little running back. Love him. But uh, my go. my main love is probably uh, I grew up going to BC games, so I'm a big BC guy, and we have fallen on uh, hard times over the last few years. Well, it's been like 10 years, really. But yeah, 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 yeah. Just great going to the game. Ryan, I got to see, you know, all the offensive and defensive linemen they've thrown in the leagues over the last few years. So I got them. And then um, my dad is from – my dad went to state. So Michigan State, baby. Okay, there we go. Long live Doug Flutie slash Tom Waddle, baby. Mm -hmm. Long live. (laughs) Good stuff. All right, now we shift on to the last part of the interview here. I have a very important question for you to start off. I'm going to be taking very close notes. Uh, What is your go-to place to eat in Chicago? You know, when things are normal. Okay, so can I, do you want a specific genre? Or am I just going like the one place that I'm having my last meal at? Last meal at. Wow, last meal. That is, that is, uh, that is tough. Well, all right. Um, I don't know if I'm going there last meal, but, um, you know, there's, I just love, I love a cheeseburger, Liam, at the end of the day, if it's really my last meal, like I prefer it with, with grilled onions and cheddar cheese and a little bit of ketchup and some outstanding fries, like more than I probably enjoy the, the nicest filet mignon or whatever you want, porterhouse, or whatever steak. So, um, Guilt Bar is very close to me, and I just I would probably just sit down there, have myself a whiskey, uh, eat that cheeseburger, and have a delicious piece of uh, chocolate cake to call it a career. But I, I want to throw the oven grinder in there. Because whenever anybody talks about Chicago pizza, uh, it doesn't get mentioned enough, and it's a pizza pot pie where you just imagine the dough on the outside, a layer, a thick, thick, thick layer of cheese across the top, and then in the middle, you can either have meat or marinara sauce, and you can either put these whole mushrooms in there or no mushrooms. Either way, it's so delicious. And you, it, and just they, they flip it over, and it's this gooey, melt-in-your-mouth, meat, cheese, dough <laughs> extravaganza. Yes? I am ravenous right now, man. You're, you're <laughs> piling it on. That sounds, that sounds delicious. I have never had Chicago. It, pizza so i can't really and both in chicago anyway so i don't want to i will never speak ill on it until i can try it but that sounds that sounds excellent and if you're a cheeseburger guy man let me tell you next time you're in new york you got to check out uncle jack's meat house up in queens they have the best burger i personally have ever had in my life it is killer stuff really oh yeah see where do you rank jg melons you had it I haven't had JG Mellon, so I mean, I I know that's on that's a pretty high on the list right there. I mean, that's okay. personal perspective. Will you will you do that and report back to me and go to the one on seventy fourth and third? I want to say it is because uh, that that burger, 
I mean, if I was having my last burger, I'd leave Chicago and go there. But maybe I, I'm. I, what's the name of your place again? I, I will do it. Uncle Jack's Meat House up in Astoria. Oh, it's great. Phenomenal. Anyway, now we, that we've traded restaurants to try, definitely trying JG Melons as soon as I'm back. Um, next question I have for you, and this is nice in general. This can be whatever just really comes first to mind. What is your favorite sports memory? Ooh. Well, it, it's two, um, but my top, top sports memory is 1992, game six, Bulls. Portland Trailblazers, Bulls down 15, going into the fourth quarter, coming back to win, first time winning at home, the team going off the court, the fans remaining standing, and them coming back out onto the scorer's table and having that party. That was the most fun I've ever had at any sporting event, and it's not close. But, uh, well, I should say it's not. I guess maybe it's somewhat close um, if I – include working experiences uh being being in cleveland for the 2016 cubs and and, and seeing them win in seven that was mm. that was something that, that was a that was a big time big time moment and standing on the field and looking out at all these cup fans it was just it was, it was nuts that was yeah. that was incredible yeah that sounds yeah. very remarkable <laughs> they they um I'll give one last story here. The entire Chicago media was waiting in line to go, you know, get in the Cubs clubhouse. And Liam and I, um, you know, I, I had stayed up in the press box to watch the end of the game. I mean, these people went down before Chapman gave up a three run homer to Rajay Davis. You know, they, they thought the game was over. And so I'm sitting, sitting up top through the rain delay and everything. And then when I get down there though, I'm completely screwed. Like this, I'm going to be, I'm not going to get in the Cubs clubhouse until the next day. So I, I start walking around trying to figure out how I'm going to get, you know, do something here. And so I, I walk all the way over to the Indian side. And right as I get there, like maybe a minute later, I'm just kind of lurking around. The line starts moving and they're letting the reporters into the Indians club out. So I follow the line, not really knowing exactly where it's going to go, but there it is. I can walk right out onto the field. And so all this Cubs media was the Chicago media is still waiting in line. And here I am, you know, standing there at uh, what once was Jacobs Field. I forget what they call it now, Progressive Field, whatever. It doesn't matter. And I'm looking at all these Cubs fans, and I'm like, I have the, I'm the only media person here. This is incredible, except there's no Cubs players. The only guy I can interview is Bill Murray and or John Cusack. So that, that was – it didn't have a huge payoff, but it was, a, it was a cool moment that I had beaten everybody out there and just like, oh, my God, the Cubs won the World Series, and I'm standing here, and this is the moment right now, you yeah, know. That- Best of both worlds. You got to see uh, the rest of the game from an optimal view without having to stand in line, and then you just kind of scooted right out there. I mean, couldn't have, couldn't have planned it better, really. <laughs> it, was a, it was a night to remember, for sure. For sure. That was awesome. Um, yeah. Now, for the next one, who, out of the many people I'm sure that you have chatted with over the course of your rather lengthy career here, who has been your favorite person that you've interviewed for a story or on radio or for whatever? Favorite interview? Wow. Uh, that's interesting. Um, it's been really fun for me to go back and talk to the players from the Bulls era around the last dance. I mean, that was just a a ton of fun to sit, you know, to get lengthy conversations on Zoom with 
B.J. Armstrong and Will Perdue and Horace Grant and Craig Hodges. Um, you know, that, that was, those were all super fun. Um, it was, you know, I, I'm just thinking like moments in time that were intense, uh, like doing a one-on-one interview with, with Ryan Leaf in a hotel room here. And he's talking about when he tried to kill himself. That was, that was pretty intense. And, um, you know, just kind of, it, it felt, I was, it was kind of just a moment in my career where I'm like, okay, I can just sit here and, and have this conversation and, you know, and be comfortable in the sort of the anxiety of everything that was going on. I was just, you know, it was, it was gratifying to, to do that. And, um, and he was sharing you know, vulnerable stuff. It was, it was, it was pretty powerful. Um, so those are a couple, I guess. Uh, I also think back to interviewing Alan Iverson the first time and asking him if he thought that the Sixers were going to be playoff contenders. Um, and it was the third game of, of, of the season. And he just looked at me and said, man, what the f- F kind of question is that of course we're <laughs> what what do you think i'm gonna f and say of course we're playoff contenders so that was a moment too Liam. <laughs> well yeah that's an all-timer right there yeah that's a good that's a good list right there you got a lot of got a lot of check marks there that's awesome yeah, i mean yeah, Alan Iverson, yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty sweet um and then finally last couple of questions here what is something about this industry or this job and i actually very interested to hear this answer what's uh what's something about this job that you wish you knew back when you were just getting out of university of iowa and decided hey this is what i want to do Oof. well i i mean i'd go further back if i could and just you know start to build in the work ethic and um and, and do and get myself uh in a better position coming out of school but um and i think we, we touched on it too like don't waste time do what you want to do in the industry and do it as, as quick as possible uh, that and I think the other thing that uh, you know just really resonates as you as you get a little more experience and you realize what's going on around you know in the industry you can never be too prepared I mean you are just the, the work ethic required of staying on top of everything that's going on as best you can reading watching and just building up your uh, knowledge base is huge. And then I would, and just to top that off, I would just, you know, make as many connections as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, uh, do not be afraid in reaching out to people and, and being hungry. I mean, you, you've got to, you've got to put yourself out there. Uh, um, otherwise, you know, someone else is doing it and, and you're going to fall behind. So I, I think those are at least, for me, some of the key things that you need to do if you want to, you know, have some some level of success in the industry. Well, that is an outstanding answer, and I would certainly agree 100% there, Mark. Um, that's what it's all about, really, and you know as good as anybody the value of those connections, all things considered. So any of you young journalists out there listening, close notes. <laughs> All right, Mark, well, that'll be it. Thank you so much for coming on and doing exactly what you said, which was be very honest and long-winded about your journey here. It was uh, really great. <laughs> it was really great talking with you. Uh, I really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Liam, I appreciate the platform. I really thank you for having me. It was, it was, it was fun to do. And, uh, you know, continued success to you, Stuart. I know you're, you are on your way to, uh, to greatness. So I'm looking forward to uh, working with you and, uh, and watching what you do. Oh, great. Fantastic. A free gas up from one of my coworkers. Love that at the end of the podcast. <laughs>
All right. Thank you, Mark. And as always, thank you listeners for tuning in to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I'm your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.